PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to this special issue Crakecast. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Crake offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. This month, with special issue guest co-editors Dr. Alice Aiken and Lieutenant Colonel John Childs. Here is Rebecca Crake. Hello, welcome to the September issue of Physical Therapy. I am delighted to tell you that the September issue is a special issue on rehabilitation in the military. And before I introduce the two co-editors of this special issue, I would like to take a segue for a moment. One of the August issues of JAMA talks about violence and human rights. The topics are extremely relevant to our September special issue. They include alcohol dependence, PTSD, suicide in the military, traumatic brain injury guidelines. So really, I think it's a very lovely context for our specific focus on rehabilitation in the military. And now I would like to introduce our guest co-editors. I first met Alice Aiken in June 2011 at the World Confederation for Physical Therapy that was held in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Alice was so excited about physical therapy in the military. She had just finished her term as the president of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, and we got talking, and it just seemed like we needed a special issue. When I came back to the States and talked to John Childs, who was an editorial board member, he was equally excited. And so it's been a long journey from June 2011 till today, but I am delighted to have them both with me. So, Alice, will you begin by introducing yourself to the audience? Certainly. I'm Dr. Alice Aiken. I'm the director of the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research and an associate professor and chair of the physical therapy program at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada. Our institute, the Canadian Institute for Military and Veteran Health Research, is a network of 26 Canadian universities dedicated to researching the needs of military personnel, veterans, and their families. I'm also a veteran, having served in the Canadian Navy for 14 years, and so this topic's very near and dear to my heart. And John, will you introduce yourself? Sure. In Air Force speak, I'm Lieutenant Colonel John Childs. I'm active duty in the Air Force currently serving as the Director of Musculoskeletal Research at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, and as an Associate Professor in the U.S. Army Baylor Doctoral Program in Physical Therapy in San Antonio, Texas. I'm actually nearing the end of my active duty career. I will have finished serving 20 years in the Air Force within the next, oh, about eight months or so. So the culmination of this special issue has particular sentimental moments for me, as I've spent most of my career in an academic and research role within the military, so seeing a special issue like this unfold to highlight the role of military and veterans rehabilitation research is a particularly rewarding time. And I thank you both for all the work that you put into the special issue. What we're going to do is just go straight through the journal articles and let either Alice or John summarize. The first article is entitled, Work Reintegration for Veterans with Mental Disorders, a Systematic Literature Review to Inform Research. The first author is Linda Van Til. She and her colleagues are from Veterans Affairs Canada. So, Alice, I think you want to talk about this article. I am, certainly. 
Dr. Van Til and her colleagues conducted a very thorough and methodologically sound systematic review to look at work reintegration for veterans with mental disorders. And they focused primarily on the Canadian and the American literature and what we know in North America about reintegration of veterans with mental disorders. Really timely articles since we hear so much in the media about post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, alcoholism, things associated with having worked in a stressful environment. Not only is it a great methodology to read if you're kind of a research geek, but it's a really interesting article talking about reintegration of veterans with mental disorders. The next article is entitled Changes in Dynamic Planter Pressure During Loaded Gait. John, take it away. You bet. The idea was to try to address some of the questions around the implications of load carriage on pressure across the foot. If you look at the claims data, lower extremity overuse injuries are clearly one of the biggest issues that soldiers experience. In this particular study, they took roughly 100 service members, the majority of them being men, and had them walk across a pressure platform under three conditions, just in their uniform without any load, or a 20-kilogram load, or a 40-kilogram load. Then they assessed arch height, and they were classified as either having a normal, low-arched, or high-arched foot. The gist of what they found was that patients with high arch foot did have increased force more in the medial forefoot, whereas those in the sort of lower arch or normal group tended to have higher levels of force across the great toe. So you can see some implications of force based on the arch type. And this is an article that I think we can easily transfer into non-military. So short duration, high loads. We can see overuse much more quickly in the military, but there's no reason why you couldn't see it over time in the non-military. I also found it really interesting from a historical perspective because they used to, if you had flat feet, you didn't used to be able to join the military, and they were probably exactly wrong that people with high arches are going to take extreme loads in one part of the foot, whereas the flatter the foot, the more the loads are spread out, and it may not lead to injury quite as much. That's interesting. The next article is entitled, Sleep Deprivation Has No Effect on Dynamic Visual Acuity in Military Service Members Who Are Healthy. The first author is Matthew Shear. He and his colleagues are from the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine, located in Nantech, Massachusetts. Alice. Yeah, this is not something that we would test necessarily as physical therapists, but I think what's very interesting is visual acuity is often a measure for underlying health conditions. There can be changes in visual acuity with mild traumatic brain injury, which is one of the things that we see a lot out of Afghanistan and Iraq, particularly in terms of blast injury. And there's a lot of testing being done on visual acuity in people with mild traumatic brain injury or persistent visual acuity problems. It's also been related to post-traumatic stress disorder. What's interesting is that oftentimes people will blame it on other things like, well, I'm just not sleeping well or I've been sleep deprived for so long because you could argue that when you're in a combat zone that even if you do sleep, you're probably not fully relaxed at any point in time. And what this shows is if you're otherwise healthy, sleep deprivation itself has no impact on visual acuity. Perhaps if somebody has sort of persistent physical symptoms that don't really seem to have an organic cause, it can be the sign of something underlying. Thank you, Alice. The next article is entitled Factors Associated with Utilization of Preoperative and Postoperative Rehabilitation Services by Patients with Amputation in the VA System. This is an observational study 
conducted by Linda Resnick, who is from the Center for Gerontology and Healthcare Research at Brown University, and her colleague Matthew Borgia, who is Department of Veterans Affairs Research in Providence, Rhode Island. And John, I think you're going to summarize this one for us. You bet. This was a particularly interesting study because it really gets at this whole concept of translational research where it's seeing whether or not evidence-based practice is actually having any implications on day-to-day care that's being provided. And in this particular study, what Linda and her colleague looked at were the implications of the VA guidelines that were published to try to standardize rehabilitation for those veterans who had received a lower limb amputation within the VA system. And so this particular study, they ended up with about 13,000 cases and did, in fact, find increased compliance with guidelines after the guidelines had been implemented. And so this is at least one case where a guideline that's published within a relatively closed system like the VA actually showed a positive change in practice behavior in terms of these individuals receiving rehabilitation. I was very excited by the outcome of this paper. We need some evidence that there's value in pushing the clinical guidelines. So I'm really pleased that Linda and Matt were willing to do this paper. The next paper is entitled Effect of Two Different Exercise Regimens on Trunk Muscle Morphometry and Endurance in Soldiers in Training. The first author is Deidre Tehan, and I'm delighted to say that Deidre has just joined the editorial board for PTJ, so thank you, John, for helping introduce me to Deidre. She and her colleagues are from the U.S. Army Baylor Program and from the University of Florida. So, John, take it away. This particular study was a secondary analysis that was part of the larger prevention of low back pain in the military trial that we conducted in collaboration with the U.S. Army Baylor PPT program and Steve George and Sam Wu out at the University of Florida. The larger question of the trial was really looking at the implications of core stabilization exercise versus a more traditional sort of sit-up-based approach in healthy soldiers and then track those soldiers over time to understand the implications of that on the development of back pain. And the results really weren't all that dramatic we really didn't see any differences in muscle hypertrophy or the ability to contract the trunk muscles between the groups. And so what might have contributed to that finding, this was an already very active cohort. So maybe this dose is really not appropriate, perhaps, but this type of care is more for a clinical population, for example. I really like this article because I think it does emphasize the need to consider dose, John. The results were disappointing to me because it was such a large sample and I was anxious to see what would happen. But when I looked at five minutes of exercise four times a week for 12 weeks and then considered the population, I think it reminds us that we really have to consider the correct dose for the right patient population. The next article is entitled, Undetected Pectoralis Major Tendon Rupture in a Patient Referred to a Physical Therapist in a Combat Environment. This is a case report by Carrie Hopps and her colleagues. Carrie was in the doctoral program at U.S. Army Baylor at the time that this paper was written. John. Yeah, Carrie was on faculty, but I suspect she was probably deployed when she actually saw this particular patient herself. It was a 29-year-old man, active duty, who presented with a sudden onset of right shoulder pain. 
after performing a bench press, the concentric portion of a bench press, and was subsequently referred to physical therapy for a shoulder strain. And the physical therapist detected what they thought was more akin to a pectoralis major rupture as opposed to a strain. And as a result, a consult was put in to see the orthopedic surgeon. In fact, a pectoralis major tear was diagnosed. The patient underwent subsequent surgery to repair it and had a positive outcome three months after surgery and subsequent rehab. And so I think the message from my perspective is that it's really incumbent on us as physical therapists, regardless of whether we're in a direct access setting or in a more typical sort of referral-based setting, to be vigilant for these types of patients who may come through undetected. Thank you. Alice, anything to add? I agree with John. In Canada, we all have direct access. All physios have direct access in Canada. So I thought this really provided an important sort of heads up for all physical therapists, not just those dealing with military and veterans. And our first-year students just finished a unit on low back pain. The physician assistant faculty members came over and helped them do medical screening for all the other reasons why low back pain could occur. They were scared to death. Their eyes got as large as I could possibly imagine. So it's so wonderful that we've begun to emphasize and stress the need for careful screening for reasons other than musculoskeletal pain. So I thank the authors for this paper. The next paper is entitled Clinical Reasoning and Advanced Practice Privileges Enable Physical Therapists Point of Care Decisions in the Military Health System. And there are three clinical cases. The authors include Daniel Ron, who is from the Madigan Army Medical Center in Fort Lewis, and the other authors are from the Army Baylor University PT program. So, John, I think this one's yours. You bet. This particular set of cases were patients that were actually seen by Dan Rohn when he was deployed. The purpose of this paper is really to highlight the role of military PTs in a combat environment. Physical therapists in the military often will have an advanced set of practice privileges that include the ability to order diagnostic imaging, non-steroidals, labs, those types of things. And the reason is because in a deployed setting, oftentimes the physical therapist is on the front line of care in a quote-unquote direct access setting seeing these patients. And so this particular article presents three examples of cases highlighting the role of the physical therapist utilizing those privileges. Thank you. And the next paper is the meaning of occupation, occupational need, and occupational therapy in a military context. The authors are Helen Brown and Vivian Hollis. Both are occupational therapists on faculty at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta. Alice. Yeah, in Canada, we don't have any uniformed occupational therapists which you do in the United States. We used to, but that was all done away with in the 80s. So I think with the renaissance of military and veteran health research around the world, other health professions are looking at the way our national health system works. And so what Helen and Vivian did in this article was define what occupation is, which is not merely where you work. It is everything that occupies your time. And they talk about where the need is within the military and the role that an occupational therapist could play. I think this might be of particular interest to the American audience as well because you do have uniformed occupational therapists, right, John? Yeah, that is correct. 
Yeah. And so what might be really interesting is for them to link with some American military occupational therapists to see what is being done in the U.S. But it does provide, I think, for all physical therapists, a really great definition of occupational therapy and especially occupational therapy in a high-stress, hard physical environment, which absolutely pertains to the military but can pertain to many other people, you know, police, firefighters, other first responders. That's a wonderful summary, and I think it works really nicely with the next manuscript that's entitled Returning Service Members to Duty Following Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, Exploring the Issue of Dual Task and Multitask Assessment Methods. The first author is Matthew Shear, again from the U.S. Army Research Institute of Environmental Medicine. Yeah, and I thought this paper was really interesting in that, you know, we talked about clinical practice guidelines and about how we want to ensure continuity of care. And I think they've presented some really interesting perspectives, and I agree with you from both the PT and the OT perspective, they've presented some really interesting tests that can be used to help not only rehabilitate people following mild traumatic brain injury, but I thought, you know, if you could administer these tests as a kind of screening test, you might actually be able to pick up if any of your clients had suffered some mild traumatic brain injury as well. So I thought it was particularly interesting in a military environment, and especially one that has involved combat, but additionally in training. Military personnel can be exposed to blast within training as well. But if you also think about trans Translating that to athletes, right? Soccer players who might get a ball in the head. Football players are being hit all the time. Hockey players are being hit all the time. There's so much research now going on in professional sport and concussion that I thought this was a great way to perhaps take some of the stigma away from the concussion term for a professional athlete and just kind of add it into your regular testing if you're working with high-performance athletes to see if you think that maybe they have suffered a concussion before they return to play. So I thought there was real applicability there for all PTs. Thank you. I agree. So the final paper is entitled The Role of U.S. Military Physical Therapists During Recent Combat Campaigns. John, take it away. I think this particular paper is a nice summary of the special issue in that this paper provides really a historical perspective of the role of military PTs in recent combat campaigns ranging all the way back to Vietnam till the current wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And the real need for military PT in a direct access screening role really became well understood at first in the Vietnam War, where the orthopedic surgeons were just overwhelmed with surgical cases. And so the physical therapists, just given the evolution of the physical therapy profession from its origin in the early 1900s until now, became recognized as a logical, quote-unquote, physician extender. And so there was a very close collaborative relationship that developed between the physical therapist community and in particular, the orthopedic surgery community during the Vietnam War. And so the role of the physical therapist has continued to evolve in a way where there's been a growing appreciation for their ability to serve alongside a multidisciplinary team and act in a direct access role to screen for these particular patients. So this particular paper is kind of a nice, easy read if you're interested in understanding the history of how physical therapists became positioned to function in this sort of setting. And Alice, I would ask, do you, in reading this paper, do you feel that there's a parallel for Canada in the military? 
absolutely physical therapists in the military have a much more advanced scope of practice than outside of the military. What's been really interesting for us is that we've taken a lot of that research and civilianized it. And so we now have advanced practice roles in all of the provinces in Canada. And we've actually had some legislated scope of practice changes. So, for example, in Ontario, where I live, if we do the additional training, we can order x-rays, we can order blood work, we can perform tracheal suctioning. So it's been really neat in terms of how it's translated out to civilian practice for us as well. So I thank you both for sharing your insight related to each of these papers. It's really been fun to hear your perceptions. And I would summarize two simple things. First of all, this special issue absolutely illustrates the role that physical therapists play in the military and begins to introduce the concept of occupational therapy in the military as well. But more importantly, for those who aren't interested in military rehabilitation, the potential for translation of what's going on in the military to the non-military, I think, is remarkably exciting. So I hope that our listeners will read these articles and enjoy them as much as I did. Thank you. The views expressed in this discussion are those of the participants and do not reflect the official policy of the Department of the Army, the Department of Defense, the U.S. government, or the government of Canada. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, Email ptj at apta.org and be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This is a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.